helping disciple makers ignite a movement locally and globally. This is the Disciple First Podcast. Now, here's your host, Craig Etheridge. Welcome to the Disciple First Podcast. It's a podcast by disciple makers and for disciple makers. My name is Craig Etheridge, and I'm your host. And today we're listening in on the back half of the message given by Robbie Gallaty at the Flashpoint Atlanta Conference. Robbie, of course, is a senior pastor at Long Hollow Baptist Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. He was radically saved out of a life of drug addiction on November 12, 2002. In 2008, he founded Replicate Ministries to educate, equip, and empower believers to make disciples that make disciples. Robbie is an author of multiple books, and in this sermon... Robbie really unpacked what does it mean to follow Jesus, and what did those early disciples hear when Jesus gave them that invitation, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You're really going to like the back half of this message, so listen in to Robbie Gallaty. The second thing I want you to show, show you is the process. Here's the process by which Jesus calls the disciples, and I want you to see we're going to start with a, with a focus, and we're going to end with others, so we'll prove our love to others when we go through the process. Go back to Mark chapter 1. It's a very simple process Jesus gave us. Notice what he says. Follow me, and I will make you fish for people, or I will make you fish for men. Write down, number one, a disciple follows Jesus. Let me give you a four-part outline on this one, one uh, sentence. A disciple follows Jesus. Notice what Jesus does here. Jesus calls them to who? To himself. Now you have to understand, in the first century, this would have been radical. No rabbi prior to Jesus would ever think of calling someone to follow a man. You have to understand, when you followed a rabbi in the first century, guess what you followed? The Torah. You followed God. You didn't follow a man, you followed the Torah. Jesus breaks every cultural norm and says, don't follow just the Torah, follow me. Now, what is Jesus really saying? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word what? Became flesh. Jesus is saying, you are following the Torah because you're following me, right? Another thing Jesus shows us is the call is personal, right? Jesus says, come follow me. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, guys, let's get together and and let's talk about systematic theology. He doesn't say that, right? He doesn't say, hey, let's come and wrestle with the tenets of Calvinism and Arminianism. He doesn't say that either, right? He doesn't say, hey, let's, let's work out the issues of soteriology, justification, sanctification, and glorification. He doesn't even say, let's try to figure out creation. Is it six days or six million years? He doesn't say any of that, right? Not discounting any of that, but here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, come follow me. It's a personal call. And here's what Jesus shows us. Watch this. Everything in our Christian life flows out of our vertical relationship with him, right? If you're having problems horizontally with other people, if you're having a problem loving other people, I would ask you to question your love for God. See, because when the, horizontal, when the vertical is out of line, it affects all horizontal relationships, right? Notice what else Jesus does, and this is amazing. Jesus is the only rabbi in Jewish history prior to and after him to go out and personally summon someone to follow him. 
See, that's not what rabbis did in the first century. What rabbis did in the first century was they had the, the aspiring student come to them. See, the student said, can I follow you? But Jesus breaks all the norms and says, you follow me. Aren't you glad he came and called you? Amen? Remember the day he called you? I'm glad he called me. I wasn't looking for him. <laughs> and he called me. So a disciple first follows Christ. Write it down secondly. A disciple is formed by Christ. A disciple is formed by Christ. Look at the text. Follow me, and I will make you to what? Become, the ESV says. I will make you fishers of men. It's interesting. What Jesus is talking about here is a future tense promise as though it already happened in the past. Now, how can he do that? Audience participation. How can he do that? Because he's God, and he's not bound by time. So he already knows. When you follow me, the natural outflow is that I'm going to make you into something. Okay? It's the sanctification work of God, the sanctifying work of God in our life, right? It's us working alongside with God as God forms us into the image of his son. Now, one of the things about making and becoming, and you know this with discipleship, is that it's a long process, right? You and I both know, disciple-making is not a microwavable recipe, right? It's a crock-pot recipe. You can't microwave a disciple. <laughs> Think how long it took you to get to where you are, right? I know how long it's taken me. And I'm still growing. I'm still learning, right? Just like you. But it's a crock-pot recipe. It's a slow process. Now, and we can't produce the fruit. We can't make ourselves to be like Christ. Here's what we can do. Don't miss this. We can align ourselves... And put ourselves in an environment, as Greg Ogden says, as a hothouse for spiritual transformation. We can put ourselves in what is called a greenhouse effect for growth. Now, how do we do that? When I was a kid, believe it or not, I used to get picked on. In fact, that may be why I took up MMA and, and mixed martial arts years later, Ken, because I think I got picked on as a kid and tried to combat that years later. But I was picked on as a kid, and uh, I was, I remember you know, in, in middle school, high school, this movie came out and it was a healing balm to my soul. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I'm just going to be frank and open. I practice the crane kick. Anybody ever practiced? <laughs> Remember the crane kick? Anybody? If you were raised in the 90s, you practiced the crane kick. I'm telling you. Now, one of the things about the crane kick is it's a beautiful looking kick. The problem is it's completely worthless. I'm just going to say, it does not work. It'll get you beat up. I'm telling you, it'll get you beat up. And uh, I used to practice this kick because I love the movie. Remember the Karate Kid, Ralph Macchio, uh, Mr. Miyagi? Every time Daniel-san would go into the garage to see Mr. Miyagi, he was doing one thing. Do you remember? Does anybody remember? He was snipping something. What was he snipping? The bonsai tree. Do you know the bonsai tree is probably one of the greatest pictures of discipleship that we could ever have? So much so that I bought a bonsai tree on eBay. Just going to be honest with you, bought the bonsai tree. My assistant and I, I was so excited. I said, this is like a picture of discipleship. It died in two weeks. Okay? So I'm just going to say, bonsai trees are hard work to cultivate. So anyway, I had this tree for about two weeks. But the cool thing about a bonsai tree is this. It's a tree that has all the properties of a larger tree. It has leaves and branches and even has buds. But one of the things about the bonsai tree that makes it so cute is the fact that it's small. But here's the problem. The bonsai tree was never created to be small. See, if you take the bonsai tree out of the pot and you plant it in a field with other trees, do you know the bonsai tree will actually grow higher? Why? 
Because the roots can go deeper. See, because of the pot the bonsai tree's in, it can't grow deep. The roots can't go down, therefore the tree can't grow up. It constricts its growth. Come in real close. Maybe the reason you're not being all that God's called you to be is because of the environment you're in right now. It's because of the people you're hanging with. It's because of the lack of spiritual disciplines. See, when a Christian engages in spiritual disciplines, it's as if he takes or herself out of the bonsai tree and plants and uproots themselves into the ground, right? We can't grow ourselves, but we can put ourselves in an environment, you see it, for spiritual growth. I tell young people when I'm talking to you, you want to know your future? Take a photograph of the five closest friends you have, and that'll tell you where you're heading. Because we are who we hang with, right? You can't soar with the eagles if you're hanging with a bunch of turkeys. And we know that, right? So, so a disciple follows Christ. Secondly, a disciple is formed by Christ. Christ forms us. Thirdly, here's the focusing on others part. Had to tell you that to tell you this. A disciple is focused on others. Notice what Jesus says. Follow me, and I will make you fish for men. Here's what I love about Jesus. Write this down. When Jesus calls the men on the front end of the ministry, he implants within them the seed of replication. You see it? Here's what he's saying, in essence. He's saying, guys, the ministry is not about you, although you thought it was about you. I'm not looking for consumers. I'm looking for co-workers. See what he's saying? He's saying, I need you guys to realize this is not just about you, it's about other people. And I think the greatest thing we can do to show our love to other people is to tell other people about the greatest news in the world, right? Now, don't miss what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not reducing this to, to evangelism only. Some people try to reduce this. Well, Jesus is saying we need, to, we need to be about the business of soul winning, and we do. But that's not what Jesus is talking about only here. When he says you'll fish for people, he's not just talking about winning souls. We need to win souls. He's talking about the two-or approach to disciple-making, right? See, disciple-making has two ors, evangelism and discipleship, right? Disciple-making, call it whatever you want. Discipleship and evangelism. Both ors are needed to row the boat forward, right? If you only have evangelism, guess what we're going to do? We're going to do what we've been doing, right? No offense, but we're going to keep going in a circle. But if we only have discipleship, we're going to keep going in a circle. We have to have both. See, if we only have evangelism, we run the risk of building a church a mile wide and an inch deep, right? But if we only have discipleship as the focus, we run the risk of building a church an inch deep and a mile wide, I mean, an inch wide and a mile deep. Both have equal problems. What Jesus is showing us here is this. He's saying the gospel came to you guys, watch this, because it was heading to someone else. Did you know that? The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. And so every person in here is either running with passion and handing off the baton to someone else, or we're fumbling the handoff, right? I mean, that's how, that's how we can divide every one of us in here into two different categories. I love what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, come follow me and I'll make you rich. And notice that? Like, this is the clarion call. This is what they're going to stake their life on. Come follow me, I'll make you guys successful. Come follow me, I'll make you famous. Come follow me, I'll make you wealthy. Come follow me, I'll make you intellectual. Come follow. He doesn't even say, come follow me, I'll make you happy. 
make you joyful. He didn't say any of that. Notice what he says. Come follow me, and your whole ministry will be focused on other people. Any questions? That's what he's saying, right? And the disciples simply drop everything they have and follow him. Here's what I fear has been the problem in our churches for hundreds of years now. Here's the problem, if I could be so frank and speak with great humility. Here's the problem, I think. We have been so focused, watch this, on teaching people how to share their faith, but we have not taught them how to share their life. It's a big difference. See, we have done really well and tried to teach people how to share. Anybody can get together and put together an Amway pitch, no, no offense. Or anybody can get the courage, of, hey, if you died today and you stood before Jesus Christ, would you go to heaven or hell? Anybody can get the courage to do that. But what do you do after the person walks through the threshold of faith? That's where the work comes in, right? We taught people how to share their faith. Unfortunately, we haven't taught them how to share their life. And the discipleship process is never complete, though, until the one evangelized becomes an evangelizer, right? Or the one discipled becomes a disciple maker, or the mentee becomes a mentor. Now, if I would finish here, it'd be a great insight into the lives of these men. But I want to take it one step further. And I want to show you something that's implied in the text, and that is this. A disciple follows Christ. A disciple is formed by Christ. A disciple is focused on others. Here's the final one. A disciple forsakes everything. A disciple forsakes everything. Now, where do I get that? Aren't you awestruck by the fact that these men simply drop it all and follow Jesus? Two of them are on duty at work with their dad. They're not even going to clean the nets out. I don't know if you've ever been fishing before. I have. It's a lot of work to clean nets and the boat. And they say, Dad, you handle it because we've given our life to this broke, penniless, traveling, itinerant rabbi. And they have immediate obedience, right? Now, let me show you something about this. Interesting. Did you know that delayed obedience is disobedience? Did you know that? See, when, when we know what's right and we delay in doing it, that's it's a sin, right? Let me tell you this one, though. Think about this. Partial obedience is disobedience, right? I'll do what you want, but I'm only going to do it partially. I'll give what you want, but I'm only going to do it partially. I'll go here, but I'm not going there. That's disobedience, and that's a sin. These men simply hear the call, and follow Jesus, right? Now, what I want to do is, right before we close here, I want to take you back 2,000 years, and I want to place you on the water, and I want you to hear with an eastern ear the weight of what Jesus said to these men, because I think we miss it in our Western culture. I want to put you back in the first century. It's a journey for just a moment. If you were raised in the first century, particularly in Galilee, Nazareth, you would have, at the age of five, enrolled in what was called the Beit Sefer. People ask me, where would you get this from? Dr. Dwight Pryor, the late Dr. Dwight Pryor, jcstudies.org. In the first century, at the age of five, you would have gone to the Beit Sefer in Hebrew, which was the house of the book. And in that study, you would have learned, in that time of study, you would have learned from five to ten, watch this, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You wouldn't have learned math, you wouldn't have learned calculus, you wouldn't have learned astronomy, uh, you wouldn't have learned biology, thank God, I, I, 
didn't do well in that in college, but thank God, right? But you learned the Torah. Now, why would you learn the Torah? Because in the Torah were the answers to everything. It was God's word. Now, let me just say this. For, it's interesting. They devoted five years of their life to the word of God. Why would they not want to learn the word of God, right? You know, what's sad is we live in a day and age today when people don't value this book anymore. We don't value... And, and listen... The reason they got overjoyed about the Torah is because they realized these weren't just words on a page. This was actually the breath of God. And we live in a day and age today, no offense to some, but we use the Bible as a place marker to hold seats. Hey, I think I'll take that one right there. Yeah, I'll get that. That's what we do with the word, right? And I'm not worshiping the Bible in itself as pages or a book. I'm saying this is the word of God. When they would bring the Torah out in the first century, they'd take it out the Torah closet. They would unroll the scroll. Guess what the people would do in the synagogue? Guess what Jesus probably would have done? People would get on their feet and then raise their hands as the word was read. They didn't raise their hand in worship. They raised their hand when the word was read. Now, the service was very different. I get that. They read the word for 40 minutes and they had a five-minute sermon. So don't get any ideas, but that's what they did back then. And listen, when they'd read the word, people would start dancing, and they'd start clapping. They would say, this is God's word. God didn't leave us. He gave us a plan. He gave us a purpose. This is the word of God. And what they did is they hid the word in their hearts. At the age of 10, it was not uncommon to see many 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Watch this committed to memory. I don't think you heard what I just said. <laughs> Try that again. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy committed to memory. This was God's word. They hid it in their hearts. They didn't have moleskins or iPads or Evernote. They had the word. They had their mind, so they hid it in their mind. Most people didn't make the cut, and so they had to go work for the family. There was a junction that took place. It was a juncture, I'm sorry, that took place uh, at the age of 10 or 11, they couldn't make the cut. They weren't smart enough. They didn't have what it took. They didn't have, they didn't have perseverance. They didn't have, they didn't have a love for the Word of God. So at the age of 10 or 11, they went to work for the family. And they learned the trade of the father. If the father was a fisherman, guess what they did? They were fishermen. If the father made sandals, guess what they did? They made sandals. If the father owned a vineyard or tended sheep, they, they did the same. But the second level of study was for those who excelled in school. It was called the Beit Talmud, or the House of Learning, in Hebrew, House of Learning. And they would study the rest of the Old Testament. It wasn't old to them, it was the only testament to them. You know, people don't read the Old Testament anymore today, and I say that's a, very tra that's a tragedy. Why? Because you're neglecting the Bible that Jesus would have read. Just as, just as I know. So they had the Only Testament, which was the Old Testament. They studied the Old Testament. They studied phrases and interpretation. They studied the oral law. And at the age of 15 or 16, another crossroads happened in their life. They could either go to study from a rabbi, which very few had the privilege to do this, or, like the majority of them, 90 plus percent, went back into the world and learned the family business. Why? They weren't good enough. They weren't smart enough. They didn't have what it takes. But the upper echelon, the PhDs, the demons of the world, got the privilege to study under a rabbi in what was called the Beit Midrash, the Beit Midrash, the house of study. Just sounds intimidating, right? And so they went to a, to a rabbi in town, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yehuda, one of the rabbis in town. And the aspiring student would ask the rabbi, can I 
learn from you? Can I give my life to you? And he didn't want to know just what he knew. He wanted to do what the rabbi could do. And the rabbi would ask himself questions. Is this kid smart enough? Does he have what it takes? Does he have what Hebrews call chutzpah? You ever heard that before? Passion, excitement, a love for the word of God. And if he thought he had what it took, he would put him through a series of tests equivalent to an oral exam for a PhD program. <laughs> and I can tell you, you don't want to sit there. It's an intense time of schooling. He'd ask him questions about interpretation, questions about the law, questions about tradition, questions about the Old Testament, questions about the Hebrew. And if he thought this boy, the age of 15, 16, possibly 17, had what it took, he would say, come in real close, the greatest three English words any Eastern ear could have ever heard. Come, follow me. At that point in his life, he would give the next 15 years to study. Let me take you back to Mark 1. When most rabbis are beginning their earthly ministries at the age of 30, we meet a Jewish stonemason carpenter, craftsman, by the name of Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew. Jesus is walking by the seashore, and he looks out upon the sea, and he sees four men fishing. Now feel the magnitude of this. Why are they fishing? <laughs> Couldn't make the cut. They weren't smart enough. They didn't have what it, what it took. They weren't intellectual enough. They, didn't have, they, they were overlooked and looked over. You've got to understand, if James and John wanted to know their future, that's all they had to do was look to their father. That's what they were doing for the rest of their earthly life. And one day, God himself intersects space and time and calls out to them across the water. Now, I don't know if it was like this, but this is the closest thing I can think of. Second, third grade, once again, picked on eating clovers, face in the ground. <laughs> That's my life as a kid. And uh, I never forget, we, we tried to play football every day. Now, we weren't supposed to play tackle football. You guys remember this, but we did it anyway. Right? So we'd go around the corner, we'd line up on the fence, and there was always these same two guys picking teams. You remember these two guys. One had failed twice. Remember him? He was the bully. Remember him? And then he had his partner in crime, who basically was a patsy, did whatever he wanted, and no one was going to tell him any different. So I never forget, we'd stand by the fence, every recess we'd stand by the fence, and we're trying to look as tall and athletic, athletic as we could. And what is the one thing we don't want to happen? To get picked last, right? And it would always happen this way. I could still go back and think about it. They'd say, Mike, we want you. Joe, come on our team. Je Jeff, we want you. Jason, Chris, and then after they'd get enough people in their minds what they needed, they would look back at two, three, four of us standing on the fence waiting to be picked, and they'd say, you know what? We have enough, maybe tomorrow. Now, I'm older now, and it doesn't affect me like it did then, but it affected me then. And I'd go home to my dad, and I'd cry to my dad, and I'd say, Dad, why, why don't they pick me? I, I just... I just want to belong to something, right? Just, I just want to be a part of something. I just want people to see something in me. I want people to value me, right? I don't know if it was like that, but I want you to imagine the disciples in a similar fashion were out working that day. It was an average, ordinary day. 
and breaking through the wind and the silence, Jesus' voice sears through the water and the wind and the waves. And here's what he says. Peter, James, John, Andrew, come follow me. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you're good enough in my book. He's saying, I see something in you that you don't even see in yourself. He's saying, I want to do something in your life that even if I told you guys, you wouldn't even believe me. But I need you to trust me. Would you follow me? You know, every born-again believer in here could say that we heard that same, watch this, we heard that same Galilean accent one day call our name. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad of that? Do you realize what Jesus did? He took a bunch of boys who couldn't make the cut, and he changed the course of human history. And he did it with 11 guys, and then 12 after one turnoff. They did it with 12 guys. And the reason we're here today is those 12 guys. What could Jesus do with a room of this size? He could change the world, right? John Wesley said, give me 50 men who hate nothing more than sin and love no one more than God, and I could change the world. I don't know about you. I want to be that man. And I know you want to be that woman. And so let's go to the Lord as we consecrate this time to him and commit this conference to him. We're going to pray collectively that a spark of revival would take place in our hearts today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Just a moment. Father, we are so thankful for the Word of God. And we pray that you would give us a passion, God, to get in the Word until the Word gets into us. We don't want to flippantly look through it and casually read about it. We we want to hear your voice. We want to sense your presence. Jesus, I'm so thankful for the men and women who have come here today to give their Friday night to hear a message from your word on the thing that was paramount in your ministry, and that was to make disciples. And not let this be, God. Help this to not be just a message we amen. Make this a movement that we participate in. It wouldn't be just ear words to our ears. It would actually be marching orders to our lives. And so help us now, God. Speak to us in the days ahead through this conference that we would go out and be the catalyst to cause a discipleship movement in this country. And God, we know discipleship is a fire. Once it takes heart in our people, it begins to spread in the pews of our churches and the padded seats all through uh, at our churches, and one of the things we know, God, is that we don't have to advertise a fire because it advertises itself. Set us ablaze for the gospel and for the ministry of discipleship. We pray it in the only name we know how, and that's the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Thank you, guys. That was Robbie Gallaty as he unpacked what does it mean to follow Jesus. If you'd like to hear more 
from Robbie Gowdy or to find out more about how to make disciples and make disciples in the context of your local church, go to disciplefirst.com. Disciplefirst.com is the one-stop shop for disciple-making resources. Also, look for the Flashpoint Conference that's coming near you. We have several going across the country. We want you to be a part of it. You can hear people like Robbie Gowdy and Bill Hull and others that are really leading the church in disciple-making. So find the next Flashpoint Conference near you and get to it. You can find that also at DiscipleFirst.com, DiscipleFirst.com. And until then, go make disciples.